Ma Duncan never dies. She really doesn't. But when you think back to how life was in the 1950s, everybody felt safe. You know, it was post-war. Nobody locked their doors. Nobody was suspicious of, honestly, anybody. And women didn't commit this kind of heinous crime. So when this happened, it was just, it, it still is a horrendous crime because she murdered not only her daughter-in-law, but she murdered her granddaughter. And so for it, it garnered such worldwide headlines that it just stayed in the press for the longest time. Hi everyone, I'm Andrea Howry, and welcome back to the Ventura County Stars podcast, Never 30, where we look at timeless stories from the county's past. We named the podcast Never 30 because reporters used to type a 30 at the end of a story to let the typesetter know that there were no more pages, that the story was done. But there are some stories that have no ending. You can type to be continued or part two to come, but never 30. On November 17, 1958, a Santa Barbara nurse named Olga Duncan, about eight months pregnant at the time, disappears. Nearly a month later, the case makes headlines in the Ventura County Star Free Press, the precursor to the Ventura County Star, when the nurse's mother-in-law, Elizabeth Duncan, described as being jealous of her son's marriage, is arrested on charges of faking an annulment in Ventura County, the annulment of the marriage between her son, Frank Duncan, and Olga. For the rest of the year, the story of Ma Duncan, sometimes described as bizarre, other times weird and macabre, unfolds on the front page of the Starfree Press. Olga's body is found December 21st in a shallow grave on Casitas Pass, and a grand jury soon indicts the 54-year-old Elizabeth Duncan and the two men she hired to kill her pregnant daughter-in-law. The grand jury testimony that runs on the front page implies incest, something both Ma Duncan and Frank vehemently denied, but it makes the case more salacious and much more irresistible to the press. When Ma Duncan's trial begins the following February, it attracts reporters from around the world, so many that the county clerk clears out a room in the back of his office to serve as a press room. On days when Ma Duncan is on the witness stand, spectators line up in the Ventura County Courthouse, now City Hall, as early as 5 a.m. to try to get a seat in the courtroom. And when Ma Duncan is found guilty on March 16, 1959, the Star Free Press prints its first extra since VJ Day in 1945. The case also puts Ma Duncan herself in the history books. She's, she's the last female ex ever executed by the state of California. That was in August of 1962. This is Glenda Jackson, who moved to Ventura in 1969 and started researching the case when she began working for the city in 1988. She began offering a Ma Duncan tour in 1997, and it continued for about 17 years. We initially were, we were all within City Hall, the old county courthouse, because that's where the trial took place. And so we, we did the two-hour tour there. Uh, we ended it in council chambers, which was superior courtroom number one, which I kind of always thought was funny because there was no other, <laughs> there was no other superior courtroom numbered after that. But that's where they held the criminal, criminal trials. So every once in a while I was able to go up into the women's jail, which is where she was housed. The trial was lurid, 
the story of a woman so jealous of her grown son that she couldn't bear the thought of losing him to another woman, even one pregnant with her granddaughter. Bob Holt, who covered the trial every day for the Star Free Press, described the case as one, quote, which, if written as fiction, would be rejected by any editor as too improbable. He described Ma Duncan as having the most piercing gaze of any person I ever met. One person said that when she was talking, anything seemed possible. She looks matronly. She was in her early 50s, which now is not old, but uh, and by 50 standards, she looks matronly, although the reporters always described her china blue eyes. So I think the eyes being the windows to the soul, but unfortunately for her, she must have masked them. But you often wonder, how could she attract so many men? How many indeed? While the final number of husbands was never fully determined, it was estimated to be about 20. Piecing together court transcripts and newspaper coverage, Glenda recounts, as she did for so many years on her tour, the story of Ma Duncan. She was very manipulative and told people what, probably what they wanted to hear. But according to her evaluation, she had a very troubled um, young life. She was nothing more than a babysitter, which was actually corroborated by some of her relatives. The last child that her mother had, the, the young boy, she actually hated because she had to babysit him as an infant. So by the time she was 13, she wanted to run away. And that sort of started a series of every time things went bad, she ran away. Her father was a philanderer. So he was stepping out and cheating on her mother. And then of course she leaves, moves to Arizona, marries at a young age, has three children. Her husband starts stepping out on her. He leaves. And she has a very difficult time trying to have money coming into the household to care for three children. And according to testimony or a letter that was written to the judge by one of the child, her first three children, she, he recalls just this kind of a turnstile back door of men coming in and out at all hours of the night. Ma Duncan unwittingly relinquishes custody of the three children to her in-laws, and she marries again. She becomes pregnant with Frank. During the marriage, whatever number that was, when she was pregnant with Frank, the husband was an alcoholic and abusive. And I believe at this point they wound up on the East Coast. And she left, her mother was then at that point living in Santa Barbara. So Ma Duncan told her husband at that time she wanted to go visit her mother. And again, it was a ruse. She had no intentions of returning. He ultimately died, the husband, and so she didn't have to divorce him or separate. She gives birth to Frank in 1928 while she's living in Santa Barbara. They floated around, and it's really hard to keep track of everywhere she lived. And one time she lived in Oxnard. Uh, one time she lived in Ventura. Through the years, Ma Duncan and her son become inseparable. Frank grows up and decides he wants to become an attorney. They move up to San Francisco, and he attends the Hastings School of Law which is probably a very prestigious law school. And it makes you wonder how, how could they afford it? And then suddenly you see the, the report in the newspaper that his mother was arrested for running a brothel. So then it's like, maybe we know how it was funded. Frank graduates and the two of them settle again in Santa Barbara, where Frank opens his law practice. 
His mother becomes his biggest fan. The newspapers and the magazines always describe how Ma Duncan attended every single trial. And at the conclusion when he won, she would literally walk up to the jury panel and shake all of their hands. And they'd walk up into they'd walk into the courthouse holding hands. And they were just very close. And of course she now was maybe up to Mary 15 or 16 times and you wonder why, what's the motivation? There were a couple of things with her. She, I think she was, her personality was such that she had to have a man in her life. But at some point in the late 1950s, things take a turn. One of Ma Duncan's husbands sues her for fraud and that enrages her attorney's son. Frank stormed in, got into an argument with his mother and pretty much ordered her out. Told her he'd had it, you have to leave, yeah, just leave. And they, you know, she tried to convince him otherwise and he would have nothing of it. And she went off to the bedroom, supposedly to pack and leave. Instead, she takes an overdose of Secondal. In her, her mind, if I can't be with Frank, I'm just gonna kill myself. Elizabeth Duncan is rushed to Cottage Hospital, where she is placed in the care of a young nurse named Olga Kupsik. By all accounts, just she was almost saint-like, almost like a Mother Teresa, just very attentive and caring, just sweet. And just like Frank, she was in her late 20s. And so she helped care for Duncan. Of course, while Duncan was there, Frank and Olga, there was a mutual attraction. They started dating, but Frank, told Olga that he didn't want his mother to find out because she never allowed him or wanted him to date at all when he was in high school or even through college. And typically wound up somehow or another breaking, breaking them all up if, if he wound up with a, with a girlfriend. <clears throat> so Frank and Olga started dating, continued to date even after Ma Duncan was released and he was still living with his mother. And then Olga found herself pregnant. And I always tell people when I'm on the tours, think back to the 50s. What did people do back then? You know, they did the, the right thing. So in June of 1958, they got married. The only problem was Frank never told his mother. Let's take a short break. Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Michelle Rogers, Consumer Experience Director for the Ventura County Star. If you love listening to great stories like I do, the Ventura Storytellers Project has an all-new season of great live storytelling events planned for 2019. With four shows scheduled in the 2019 calendar, new themes will include stories of love, adventure, family, and much more from people in the community, just like you, and at locations across Ventura County. Tickets and information about these live events are available now at storytellers.com Ventura. Each of our previous shows have sold out, so get your tickets in advance. You can also purchase supporter seating to ensure you have a spot at every one of our shows for the upcoming season. I hope you'll join us. Just visit storytellers.com Ventura. We're talking about the Ma Duncan case of 1959. Before the break, we learned that Elizabeth Duncan's son, 29-year-old Frank, had married a young nurse he had impregnated, but that he never told his mother, with whom he had an abnormally close relationship. 
At the trial, Frank testifies that he told his mother the day after the wedding and that she became hysterical. But Glenda remembers the story differently. But again, Ma Duncan, being the ever suspicious individual that she was, she wondered what was going on. So she called the hospital and unknowingly got a, got a nurse at the nurse's station and asked to speak to Olga. She had made up some story. And the individual at the other end of the line went, oh, I'm sorry, she's not here today. She got married. So you can almost hear the click, just Ma Duncan, not, not, not even probably uttering a word after that, but just slowly hung the phone up. And at that point, probably started doing a slow burn because nobody was gonna take Frank away from her. Filled with jealousy and rage, Ma Duncan begins to harass the young couple. Frank and Olga moved in together. They wound up having to move several times because Ma always found them. In essence, today, she would, we would say she's stalking the couple and they were constantly having to move. She, st she was calling Olga, harassing her at work. She was spreading rumors around downtown Santa Barbara about her, telling, I think one of the major department stores was Silverwoods, would go in and tell them don't extend credit to her. She's an illegal alien from Canada. She abandoned her family in Canada. She's on drugs. She's a horrible person. My, my son is trapped. And she was literally going around slandering Olga. Of course, nothing worked. Frank and Olga were still together. So Ma decides to take matters into her own hands. And she had a really odd job. It wasn't your typical move my furniture, wash my windows, wash the car. It was, I need something important done. She met a gentleman, hired the gentleman by the name of Ralph Winterstein. Finally told him, well, the odd job is to impersonate her son, Frank. Winterstein would accompany her to Ventura County, and she, at 54 years old, would impersonate the 30-year-old Olga and get their marriage annulled. Ma Duncan was smart enough to know that she couldn't get away with it in Santa Barbara County, where Frank was a lawyer. But in Ventura County, she figured, no one would recognize them, and the annulment was granted. But even that didn't break up the couple. Ma Duncan actually tracked them down, because at this point now, they're not telling anybody where they're living because she'll show up. She was showing up at midnight, pounding on their door, yelling, Frank, Frank, come out, come out, come home, come home. And poor, poor Olga also realized what she'd gotten herself into. And there were letters that she'd written home questioning the marriage and questioning Frank, actually, and pretty much stating that she wasn't quite sure who she married now because he never stood up as mother. Things go from bad to much, much worse. So at this point, Duncan started approaching people because she was slowly just spiraling out of control. She begins soliciting people to kill Olga, offering them a variety of options. Strangulation, gunshot, acid, a bathtub full of lye. On the first day of the trial, the Starfree Press reporter would note that one of the amazing features of an amazing case is the number of people who say they had knowledge of Mrs. Duncan's intentions, yet nobody told the police. They included an 82-year-old woman named Emma Short, who accompanied Ma Duncan on all these visits. Everywhere that Duncan went, Emma went. 
because Emma was 70-something. Probably nothing else to do, but, you know, I'm going to follow my friend. We just, you know, there's like little two pals around Santa Barbara. Ma Duncan and Emma take a stroll down Lower State Street in Santa Barbara and meet with the owners of the Tropical Cafe, Esperanza Esquivel, and her husband, whom Frank had represented in a case. The couple was very familiar to local law enforcement for, I think, money laundering, you know, crimes that taking place. And Ma Duncan, I think, saw the possibilities that, you know, they owed her, their, you know, they owed Frank, and therefore they owed Ma a favor. To which Esperanza replied, I think I know a couple of boys. And that's how Ma Duncan linked up with Augustine Baldonado and Ruiz Moya, and Olga's fate was sealed. Did Frank ever get wind of any of these ideas his mom had? Yeah, one individual actually called him, and um, she actually called Frank and said, I, did you, need, you need to do something, you need to get Olga out of town because your mother's just offered $1,500 to kill your wife. And perhaps Frank went to his mom, but he was, he was such a mama's boy, if you want to call it that, that she probably convinced him uh, she's, the woman's crazy. Nobody, really, nobody went to the police was the main thing. So there was no evidence anywhere along the way that Frank was actually involved in this? No. Okay. He Absolutely was just no. off on the sidelines, maybe aware, but not doing anything, just thinking, oh, mom's off on a Correct. on a little mm -hmm. jaunt. Frank just probably could never imagine his mother doing it, because he knew, he obviously knew how she was, because that was how he grew up. Um, but to really think that your mother, because part of us would always say, I know, I know mom has issues, but, but, I don't know. On December 21st, Olga's body is found six miles inside the Ventura County line near the Casitas Dam. The woman had been pistol whipped, beaten with a wrench, and strangled. The Star Free Press reported that when Ma Duncan was told of the body being discovered, she smiled faintly, but made no comment. Emma Short, Baldonado, and Moya all testify before the grand jury. District Attorney Roy Gustafson asked Short about Frank's relationship with his mother. Was it a close one, he asks. Were there any displays of affection? Yes, well, apparently he was very much in love with her, and I think they occupied the same bed, Emma Short testifies. I think they were very intimate, such as a man and wife would be. She also talks about conversations she'd had with Ma Duncan, in which the jealous mother talked about the hatred she had for her son's wife and ways she would like to see Olga die. Baldonado and Moya testify how they made Ma Duncan's dreams come true, though they never received the money they were promised. The jury trial starts on February 16th in the same courtroom where Earl Stanley Gardner practiced law before he started writing his Perry Mason books. Quote, a throng of curious were held back from the door by a rope barrier, Bob Holt wrote. Ma Duncan meets her son in the courtroom and straightens his tie. She plays up to the press. Holt wrote that on the second day, she greeted members of the press with a smile, but turned to the Mirror News reporter and berated him for a reference in that newspaper story to her son Frank as a, quote, mama's boy. She said that such a description of Frank is, quote, absolutely untrue. In a 20-year retrospective of the case, Holt reveals that nearly every morning, Ma Duncan would hold a press conference describing alleged mistreatment and bad food in jail. Occasionally, she'd read selections from her hate mail. And in a sign of the times, he wrote, 
A woman reporter for the Hearst newspapers would give a brief description of Mrs. Duncan's attire of the day, and us male reporters would write it down. On February 26, Luis Moya takes the witness stand and describes how he and Baldonado murdered Olga. For the first time since the trial opened, Holt wrote, Frank Duncan left his mother's side, went into the hallway, and wept. Emma Short testifies about two weeks into the trial. She refuses to look at Elizabeth Duncan, who trembles in anger during the testimony, calls her a liar, and tells reporters, that woman is wearing a dress belonging to me, and she's lying. I feel like tearing it off her back. When Duncan takes the stand, she orders the district attorney to back away from the witness stand. Don't stand so close to me, she tells him. Gustafson walks to the far end of the jury box, several feet away. That's the best place for you, Duncan says. I agree, Gustafson says. The defense argues that Olga was the victim of a kidnapping gone wrong, that her abductors planned to hold her for ransom from her lawyer husband, and that Elizabeth Duncan had nothing to do with the crime. When Frank Duncan takes the stand on March 6th, he describes himself as a man caught between his mother and his wife. Quite frankly, he says, I was going back and forth like a yo-yo, trying to keep them both happy. It was his hope that once the baby was born and his mother saw it, she would soften toward her daughter-in-law and they would all be happy. It takes the jury four hours and 51 minutes to find Elizabeth Duncan guilty of first-degree murder, that she hired Luis Moya and Augustine Baldonado to kill her daughter-in-law. Mrs. Duncan received the verdict without a quiver of emotion, Holt wrote. The day after the verdict, on March 17, 1959, the Starfree Press runs a United Press International interview with Frank Duncan. I have nothing of which to be ashamed, he says. I can stand anything, anything they throw at me. He closes the interview by saying, the public will soon forget. I never will. In August of 1962, Emma Short dies of natural causes in Ventura. That same week, a triple execution, the last one in California history, takes place in San Quentin State Penitentiary. Executed that day were Augustine Baldonado, Ruiz Moya, and Elizabeth Duncan. More than 30 years earlier, Ma Duncan had been pregnant with Frank when she made a statement that had proven true. And it was when she uttered very prophetic words that nobody will ever take this child away from me. I will devote the rest of my life to this child. Obviously, she did in a very strange way. Never 30 is a property of the Ventura County Star, a member of the USA Today Network. I'm your host, Andrea Howery. The show is co-produced by me and Anthony Placencia, who also serves as the show's technical director. The news director of the Ventura County Star is Darren Peshka. Our consumer experience director is Michelle Rogers. For this episode, special thanks to Glenda Jackson and to the staff of E.P. Foster Library for retrieving months of Starfree Press microfilm. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit Never 30 in the iTunes store and leave a review. And don't forget to invite friends to listen. I would also like to invite our Ventura County listeners to support this podcast by signing up for a print or digital subscription to the Ventura County Star. Just visit subscribe.vcstar.com to see all of our special offers. On the next episode of Never 30, 
if you had the keys, you looked at things a, a whole lot differently than if you didn't have the keys. Camarillo State Hospital was built in 1932 as a public works project during the Great Depression. It opened in 1936 and housed thousands of people until it closed permanently on June 30, 1996. It was converted into a California State University with the first class of freshmen entering CSU Channel Islands in August of 2003. But the stories of Camarillo State Hospital live on. Two things I was told. One is never, ever, ever go alone to a building where that has not been renovated and is occupied because you could open the door, but if that door shut, you couldn't get back through. So good luck with that. And I've heard many a tale where somebody said, I'm going here. And then two hours later, they're like, have you seen so-and-so? And they're like, no. So then there's a search party that goes out for so-and-so. The other thing is, is that don't go trampsing around on campus, especially where there's not grass and sidewalks because of there's rattlesnakes. So, you know, just make sure, you know, you don't go off the beaten path. <laughs>